again must we go to war with only a bamboo lance. Lieutenant Commander Mochitsura Hashimoto, Imperial Japanese Navy. It is September 9th, 1942, and Warrant Flying Officer Fujita is about to bomb Oregon. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. To another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at ORHistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction basically, the good stuff. A newspaper editorial rightfully distinguished Oregon as being the least defended and most attacked section of the United States in the war with Nippon. We have spoken about Imperial Japan attacking Oregon before. The ingenious Japanese balloon bomb campaign was initiated by the Japanese Imperial Army in 1944. The subject received quite a treatment in our Japanese balloon bomb episode, our second Kick-Ass Oregon History podcast. We'll link to it on this program's page. But two other incidents rate as high as these airborne munitions on our list of Japanese attacks. The first we will explore today is the shelling of Fort Stevens. To begin our program, let us take a look at the physical combatants of this tale. Historian Doug Kent Crispin. The Japanese fielded some of the most impressive weapons in World War II, and their submarines were extraordinary. I-25 is the central character of our story today. Confusingly, the series of submarines was also called the B-Type submarine. I-25 was 354 feet long and crewed by 94 seamen. A maximum speed of 23 knots could be achieved on the ocean surface and it had a range of over 16,000 miles. Now this was not I-25's first foray off the United States coast, not by a long shot. I-25 participated in the attack on Pearl Harbor, and after the enemy carriers steamed back to Japan, nine submarines sailed east to the United States and sat off our coast for a planned Christmas Eve attack, where they were to shell American cities. The attack was canceled due to heavy American patrols, but the submarines gained valuable intelligence while out in our brackish waters. At the other side of the ring in tonight's bout, Oregon's Fort Stevens. 
originally an area habituated by the Clatsop peoples, this was also the rough location of Lewis and Clark's winter camp in 1805 and 1806, a subject we addressed in our Oregon's First Christmas podcast. The land was air quote deeded to the United States in a treaty with the native folks in August of 1851. The original fort was completed in 1865 to protect the mouth of the Columbia from Confederate gunboats and their British Navy sympathizers. And from the Civil War on, Fort Stevens remained as basically the Oregon coastal fortification right into World War II. On Sunday, June 21, 1942, I-25 opened fire on Fort Stevens. The Oregonian labeled the shelling as Japan's first attack on a primary military objective in the continental United States. Now, a quick point of clarification. Fort Stevens was not the only locale in the continental United States to be shelled during World War II. On February 23, 1942, an oil installation was fired upon near Goleta, California. Just after the war, Secretary to the Japanese Naval Ministry, Captain Ryonosuke Imamura, stated, You ask why we didn't share some coastal United States city rather than Fort Stevens and Santa Barbara oil tanks? At Santa Barbara, it was our decision to share oil tanks because we felt them important war assets. So it was with Fort Stevens. We didn't use these attacks to terrorize your people, but to strike war blows. If only similar restraint had been used in the targeting of the atomic weapons, dropped on Japan. And so it was that on that June day, a Japanese submarine sat in the water about 18,000 yards from Battery Russell. The maximum range of the battery's 10-inch guns was 15,000 feet. Furthermore, Battery Russell was on a two-hour standby alert for the night with six-inch Battery Pratt on ready duty. Battery Russell could be activated sooner than this, but several minutes would be required to get the big guns booming. Hence, no return fire was initiated by the Americans. Dozens heard the submarine's gun roar, and several eyewitnesses said they could see the muzzle flashes from across the water. Japanese sources claim 17 shells were fired. American accounts seem to settle on more like nine, or maybe just nine shells made it to the shore. Nonetheless, it was a significant engagement, and all were quite lucky that no one was hurt. The commanding officer for Battery Russell, Jack Wood, remembered that, After the first round was fired by the submarine, an attempt to get a range reading on the gun flashes was made with an observing instrument called a Depression Position Finder, located in the battery command post. The range showed on the DPF was in excess of 16,000 yards, and the submarine, therefore, was beyond the maximum range of the old 10-inch guns of Battery Russell. 
As I recall, the first round fired by the submarine was short of the battery and knocked out our basketball backboard. The subsequent rounds fired were over the battery and in a fairly even line down the sand dunes and brush towards Gearhart. The Japanese commander evidently believed he was laying a string of rounds across Fort Stevens proper. Any return fire under the circumstances would only given the sub-commander more accurate data available for correction of his own gunnery. Mrs. J.J. Pettinger recounted that, It was a very warm night with a full moon. I retired about 11 p.m. and a few minutes later the shells started coming. One went right by my open window. It made a terrific whizzing sound. My husband ran outside when I called to him. The sky lit up several times, and we saw a flash when a shell hit a tree across the lake. The shell that went through our yard crossed Highway 101 and landed near the railroad track. But Mrs. Pettinger's dramatic experience with the war in the Pacific appeared to be unique that June night. As the Oregonian put it, Coastal residents took their first taste of war unflinchingly. Astoria was calm Monday, and many persons on the street early had not heard the bombardment or known that it had taken place. Many residents of the nearby resort city of Seaside, crowded Sunday by pleasure seekers, slept through the shelling. Seaside Monday went about its business, apparently undisturbed by the visit of the submarine. In later weeks... Fragments of the shells were sold as souvenirs for as much as $10. The attack drew attention to the woeful state of Oregon's World War II coastal defenses. Oregon's Republican Senator Rufus Holman was thunderstruck. Pacific Coast defenses are criminally obsolete, woefully inadequate, and poorly distributed. President Roosevelt and his subordinates are more concerned with the plight of Iraq and Iran than with the safety of their folks here at home. Senator Holman noted that Fort Stevens' guns were of an 1898 vintage and had no hope of returning accurate fire at submarine I-25. So, I-25 slinked off the Oregon coast and slipped back to the land of the rising sun. But she and her crew were not yet finished wreaking havoc on the beaver state. Oh no, dear ass kicker, not by a long shot. Oregonians were more amused than alarmed at the Japs' puny effort to set Southwest Oregon's forest ablaze, but it brought home to them the vital importance of the airplane spotting and forest patrol programs. The tiny Jap plane which winged over Brookings and dropped incendiary bombs on the wooden slope of Mount Emily apparently had been launched from a submarine. Warrant Flying Officer Nobuo Fujita saw this forest engagement very differently. As officers from the Imperial Navy headquarters told him when describing his mission, The Northwest of the United States is full of forests. 
Once our prey's get started in the deep woods, it is very difficult to stop. Sometimes whole towns are destroyed. If we were to bomb some of these forests, it would put the enemy to much trouble. It might even cause a large-scale panic once residents know Japan can reach out and bomb their factories and homes from 5,500 miles away. The plane the Japanese used in the attack was unique. A zero-type float plane, it was stowed in a watertight hangar located at the front of the conning tower of I-25. It was lifted by a crane onto rails and launched by catapult after the folding wings had been attached. Typically used for reconnaissance, the plane had a slow but functional 300 horsepower engine and a 7.7mm machine gun. The Japanese alone, not the Germans, not the British, not the Americans, were able to successfully deliver a submarine-borne airplane in World War II. Now, by all accounts, Warrant Flying Officer Fujita was quite an accomplished pilot. On I-25's second patrol in March and April of 1942, Fujita successfully conducted reconnaissance overflights of Sydney, Melbourne, Hobart, Wellington, and Auckland in his little fucking float plane, balls of steel. But Fujita saw other opportunities possible with this small, slow plane. He wanted it to be affixed with bombs. Fujita wrote a letter to Imperial Navy headquarters, suggesting that the reconnaissance float planes could easily be a force projection of the submarines, increasing not only their detection capabilities, but also their offensive operations. Fujita wanted to affix bombs to the planes, which could be dropped on ships or even American cities. And headquarters liked the idea. They sent I-25 on a new mission and equipped Fujita with six bombs for three bombing missions. I-25's captain, Meiji Tagami, said the 150-pound bombs were improvised incendiary type and they were made aboard the sub on the voyage to the United States. Something like patriotism or nationalism, maybe a sprinkling of jingoistic pride, can be found in Fujita's words about the attacks. Our Navy had given the Americans a severe defeat several days before I left the port, sinking a number of their cruisers off Savo Island in the Solomons. On September 9, 1942, I peered through I-25's periscope at the coast of Oregon, its inland mountains wreathed by haze. I could make out the white face of Cape Bronco and could see its lighthouse flashing in the twilight. The waves, so high for the past ten days, had flattened out. The sky was clear, too. I determined to inflict still more damage on the enemy. Captain, I said, it looks good. I think we can do it today. When all was ready, the catapult was fired. 
I flew straight ahead toward the Cape Bronco Lighthouse, crossed the coast, and swung northeast for the bombing area. The sun filled the eastern sky with a red glow of brightness. After flying an estimated 50 miles, I ordered Okuda to release the first bomb, which burst and splashed a brilliant white light over the Earthscape. My mind leaped back to four months when I-25, our submarine, had been sitting in Yokosuka next to the aircraft carrier Ryuho. One of Durito's planes had put a bomb into Ryoho's flight deck, which killed a number of her crew. That pirate had bombed my homeland for its first time. Now I was bombing his. It gave me a great deal of satisfaction. Fujita's bombing run did almost no damage. A small fire was started, but it was extinguished within hours. Some of the bomb fragments found had been marked with Japanese characters, so any doubt there could have been as to the origin of the bombs was quickly diminished. What was not in doubt was that Warrant Flying Officer Nobuo Fujita became the first man to drop a bomb on the continental United States. Twenty days later, Fujita surveyed the Oregon coast through the periscope once more. I-25 surfaced on 29 September, about 50 miles west of Cape Bronco, at midnight. Oregon's coast was now completely blacked out, as it had not been 20 days before. But Cape Bronco's light was bright. A white beacon that drew us like a moth to a frame. We flew inland for about half an hour and dropped two bombs, leaving two brilliant fires burning. Four bombs gone, two more to drop. A Forest Service fire lookout, Lauren Geibner, was in his tower overlooking a vast stand of Douglas fir. Geibner heard the motor of a small plane northeast of his tower at about 5 a.m., but his view was obscured by a dense fog. But at 5.22 a.m., he saw a flash of fire, followed by a blast. He immediately radioed headquarters, who told him to keep a sharp watch for flames, which he then saw about an hour and a half later. The flames were about three miles from his tower, in a deep, dry creek canyon that was heavily timbered and in one of the most rugged and inaccessible areas of the forest. A crew of firefighters hiked into the area and put out the small blaze. As the war in the Pacific expanded, the United States fought back and fought back hard. The Americans obliterated Japanese surface ships and the mighty eye submarines were relegated to transporting cargo, ammunitions, and other supplies to isolated outposts and cut off soldiers in Japan's shrinking island empire. Lieutenant Commander Mochitsura Hashimoto of the Imperial Japanese Navy summed up his ideas on his martial attitude when reflecting on the war. He stated, 
the Japanese submarines fleet was entirely wiped out, but the martial spirit of its sailors still are with us on the far-flung oceans, in the Pacific, the Indian Ocean, and the Atlantic. We remember the multitude of resentful, sleeping warriors. In our ears, we hear the whisper of the voice from the bottom of the sea. A bright sun was shining over the Brookings annual Azalea Festival when Warrant Flying Officer Fujita attended it in 1962. He told the masses, The weather was just as fine the first time I was here. <laughs> Later, he met Fred Flynn, who was a construction foreman that supervised the volunteer crew that put out the fire that ended up burning about just one quarter of an acre. And of course, Brookings, in the end at least, got the better of the mighty Japanese Imperial Navy. Wasn't much of a fire, Flynn told Fujita. You're one of the worst fire setters in the world. Fujita also gave his 400-year-old samurai sword to the mayor of Brookings. Fujita called it the finest possible way of closing the story to pledge peace and friendship. Twas in another lifetime, one of toil and blood, when blackness was a virtue, the road was full of mud. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she As said, an Oregonian, many decades removed from World War II, it's pretty fucking weird to research these accounts. Japan and the Beaver State seem to be connected, even allied today. Economically intertwined, environmentally linked by the same waters and jet stream patterns, shit, there's even a significant level of cultural familiarity between these two societies. It seems almost inconceivable the Japanese subs were lurking off our beautiful shores and firing munitions into our midst. Additionally, I was struck by the martial honor found in the Japanese accounts. It's fascinating to look at the words that come from the mouths of our vanquished enemy, one that we've assigned an almost docile characteristic to in our era. But listening to Warrant Flying Officer Fujita talk about bombing Oregon, we can hear a feeling of pride, or even pleasure, or delight, that is absolutely similar to those uttered by our United States Navy and Marine pilots who bombed the Muslim world in our endless war on terror. He found dignity and elation in bombing Oregon, as ineffective those missiles may have been. Launched off the deck of I-25, Warrant Flying Officer Nobu Fujita was swollen with pride to be the first man in history to bomb the United States of America, specifically our state of Oregon. And I hope to fucking God that he was the last. Suddenly I turned around and she was standing there With silver bracelets on her wrists and flowers in her hair She walked up to me so gracefully and took my crown of thorns Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm Now there's a wall between us, something that's been lost. I took too much for granted, I got my signals crossed. Just between till it all began. 
down on a non-eventful morn Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers. And be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-ass Oregon history is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more kick-ass Oregon history in your life? Learn more at ORHistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kate Crispin. He doesn't have guns. He's not a girl. He's not very good at gambling, so that only leaves one option left. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass! Well, I'm living in a foreign country, but I'm bound to cross the line. Beauty walks a razor's edge, someday I'll make it mine. If I could only turn back the clock to when God and her were born Come in, she said, I'll give ya shelter from the storm orhistory.com